Welcome to the PDV Pod, in partnership with Scrum 5 and Workshop 17. Hello and welcome to the third edition of the PDV Pod with me, Andy Daniel from Scrum 5 Rugby, and of course, Mr. Peter de Villiers himself. We are here again at Workshop 17, and thank you for their support. Peter, how are you? I'm fine. Good day, everybody, and good day, Mr. Daniel. So we were talking about what we were going to do for this podcast and then I thought, do you know what, let's talk about Peter de Villiers because very rarely do we actually just sit down and take stock and you're sort of one of these enigma, enigmatic, there's the word I'm looking for, people that um, people maybe don't know as much as they believe they know about you or maybe to a degree people believe what they want to believe about you and I just think it'd be great to actually just start right at the beginning Talk about your background, talk about where you were born, where you were raised, the fact that you had a, another profession outside of coaching for a while, and uh, talk through some of the some of the good times of uh, being a bot coach, some of the bad times, I've no doubt whatsoever. Um, but also, um, yeah, who, who is Peter the Villiers? Where does he come from? Thank you so much, Andy. You know, um, uh, people people believe that that their opinion about anybody is the only opinion in life and and they believe whatever they want to believe so if you want to try and change people's opinion um, it's going to take quite a while because because you're not at every bride, uh, you're not at every funeral, you're not wherever they are and they will definitely um, uh, what they believe will definitely be the gospel for themselves so yeah, I'm a power boyki. Um, I'm born and bred here in this in this valley. Uh, I love this place to bits. Whenever you go outside Paul for a day or two and you come back, I'm telling you the atmosphere is actually welcoming you back here, and you say to yourself, "This is where I belong." Um, the vineyards in in the town, the river going right through the middle of of town. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is the this is as close as heaven as you can come. <laughs> and obviously, born and still raised and still living in Powell, which is great. But rugby, let's go straight to it. Rugby in Powell is huge. It's massive, and the reason it's massive is to the mass media is probably because of the schools. Um, first and foremost, and if you go through any old Springbok list, you'll see a lot of guys from Pal here, and that's fine. And there's um, Pal Boys High, there's Pal Him, you got Paul Ruiz down in Stellenbosch, obviously a massive school as well. Um, but actually, what a lot of people don't talk about, um, for whatever reason, is that there's a rich, rich history of rugby over in Pal East. Tell us a bit about. Well, I suppose, from my point of view, tell us a bit about, without going too deep, with rugby and Pali growing up during apartheid, but also from a bigger picture with things like SACOS and the federation teams and how actually people may think that, let's say, Pal West was one type of rugby with one type of person playing it, but actually in Pal East and many communities like Pal East, that was actually very divided in who should play rugby for who. So where did rugby start for you? And, and, and when you started realising that there were different aspects of rugby in your community, 
How did you manage to find your way and know which path you wanted to go to as a player, as a player first and foremost? Yeah, I think when you when you you come to Paul or speak to people of Paul, they tend to to leave out a very important part of 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 the of the, of the yesteryear. When we stayed in town, um, our rugby teams were formed in the area you lived, and 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 then whenever you go and play your games, it's about it's about the gangsters now today. It's about territory. It's about who's the best in Paul, coming from that part of Paul and this part of Paul from Paul. That's not before we've been moved, you know, mm. and. And there was only one uh, um, colored body, rugby body. Everybody played against everybody. There was there was no division there. When I was at school, primary school especially, um, nobody nobody were, were 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 rooting for one side or so. Everybody knew everybody because every Saturday. Everybody were at the rugby field. People dressed up completely on a Saturday. And then it'll come down to the rugby. The whole Paul actually gathered at that, at that rugby stadium called the Kral. And and there was no division in, 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 in amongst our people. Our people were, were actually one. And, and and that is where that is where we um, became friends. We understood each other. We killed each other. <laughs> and there was big fights on the field, definitely physical too. But when we went home, we all walked together as as as, as a group, and and because the crowd was so underdeveloped, um, there was a little wooden uh, dressing room there with, with 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 zinc around it, and and it wasn't there's no showers, no nothing. So you you couldn't actually clean yourself up after the game properly. Um, after the game, you just got your boots off and walked in your rugby gear back home. And then you could see how in groups people were walking because there was not a lot of cars then either. People in groups, they were walking and talking about the game. And then you see the two guys who just had a great fight on the field now. They are walking together back home. Um, with a different jersey still on, you know. Um, yeah, everybody had to buy their own jersey. Everybody, everybody uh, um, had to wash their own jersey and and come play the next day. I'm telling you, it was it was brilliant. It was great, and the community was so behind them, the players. And the one thing about about those days is that is that most of the people. In, 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 in Paul East then were defined through the rugby. <laughs> People know wow, that's a brilliant rugby player. So so like when other people became great lawyers and great doctors and great rugby was the only thing where you could make a big impact on the community. And um, yeah, it was great days those days and and you had your own your own uh, rugby games. On the side, as a, as, a, as, a, as a little boy, and then on Monday when you go to school, your teacher who played on Saturday is there, so you inspired to be like him. Um, those were the days, you know. It was wow, brilliant. Uh, let's just talk about 
the Kral because um, it was one of the first things that ever got mentioned to me when I actually moved to Pal was this piece of land that was like, I suppose as an Englishman, Twickenham. Like, yeah. in your community, this was Twickenham. Yeah. Um, or it was Loftus, or it was or Newlands, Newlands, yeah. Newlands, okay? And, and I've been there, and it's now obviously run into the ground, which first isn't great. And we'll go back to that. But then I've met other people who have played on that pitch, and people who grew up and have said, spoken of the same sort of stories that you said. I've been very privileged to meet some of the Marat family um, from Palace, and Salmon is now testament to how good a rugby family that is. But during the interview, I did a word association with him, um, uh, with Yusuf Marat and uh, Yazid, his son. And uh, I said said some words and then at the end I just said Dikral and there was silence and uh, I don't know if he was welling up <laughs> it felt like he was maybe it was me that was welling up but his reaction and his first word out of his mouth was memories and and he was rendered speechless after that how special is this piece of land and if it's so special why is it in the state that it's in now and how can we start? If there's that many memories there, why can we not create new ones? How do we how do we start this process? I'm going to go on my little rant and bandwagon now. Yeah, um, yeah, you hit the nail definitely on the head when you talk about memories and talk about people who were great. They were they were great there. They were they were Springboks, really Springboks who played for South Africa then. Um, just before the great apartheid era, who came from those areas and, and, and there were great cricketers playing on that fields and all those stuff. There were four rugby fields lying in that area. Um, so so every Saturday we had eight rugby teams playing on that against with their own spectators, their own everything. Wow, it was it was just brilliant uh, place to be in. It was a place where the community got together, you know. Um, I don't know if the crowd who, who created so much pride into so many people. Um, there were people who didn't who didn't made it in school, but they made it on the crowd, and people respected them for who they are on the rugby field, and and those are the people who kept the community together. You know, because that changed his whole uh, um, uh, mindset of of what he can be and what change he can make in the community. Mm. Everybody, most of the people were laborers, so everybody was on a, on a, on an equal footing. So nobody was better than anybody else. Um, it's only the rugby that made you Mister and Mister. You know, <laughs> so. When you talk about the crowd to people like Mr. Yusuf Murat and, 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 and those guys, the earlier guys and myself who played there, um, it formed us as people. Mm -hmm. um, it transformed us to become good rugby players. And it made us community leaders because of the respect that people got for you from 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 those places. Um, I think the crowd 
to a certain extent is part of the apartheid regime to move people away from from the area where the kraal is because it's too close to the Paul West uh, area and 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 what they did they they then built the Dal Yusufat stadium so far away from everybody so so numbers decreased then we got the the federation and the saru components in Paul where where the one group would play one week at the kraal and the next week they will play in the yusufat and so we interchange week after week so there's nothing special anymore mm. you understand that we didn't go to that one place that was special the, to us it's like like we do have at the moment we have mixed feelings about newlands and cape town stadium and it's the same thing that happened and and soon after that um everything died down because because what was dear and close to our heart didn't exist didn't exist anymore and and um yeah i think a community suffered because of of this whole thing um but the crowd the crowd delivered yeah some great say i'm telling you now give us some names the reason i mean with the with the khutams mm-hmm. Um, they were actually brilliant rugby players. Then we had uh, guys like the Morats. They were they were they were good um, in the Rangers. There was a team called Rangers with Ketangs and those kind of guys with nicknames. Were very great rugby players. Then they had um, the Ontongs. They were great. They, I mean, it was such a hell of a lot of great. The, the last people to to emerge from the crawl were were, were Chester Williams' father. Um, Randy Marinas. So I've had many people tell me Chester Williams' father oh. was a better rugby player. No, ten times. Than Chester Williams. Ten times. Ten times better. Ten oh. times better rugby player. He had a rugby brain second to none. Um, and then we had now uh, the latest Randy Marinas and Pompey Williams. Those are the guys who grew up with me in the in the last era. We were the last part of of being part of the of the crowd, you know. Um, and and our loyalty were were a bit divided too when 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 we split the Saron Federation. Mm. Um, one week here, one week there, one week here. We didn't have a, a home anymore. We didn't have a place where you this belongs to us, you know. So yeah, um, this is where that is where the crowd were, were the crowd were actually. If you wanted to to meet anybody, you go to the crowd. And um, then we had a, a representative team being selected from all those teams in Paul. And if you made that Paul team, yeah, then you, then you, then you were the bee's knees. I'm telling you, <laughs> <laughs> had to be good to get into that one. Yeah, and a lot of people I know, you probably didn't play him that often, but you, um, you, you played a bit against uh, another former bot coach, obviously, and Alistair could see uh, he was younger than you. You were at the tail end of your career. I bet he was pretty handy. Yeah, uh, Alistair, Alistair was <laughs> Alistair was one of those those uh, um, talented sports sportsmen at cricket he was very good at rugby he was very good um, um, and yeah at the end of my career I played I played against him and um, yeah a classic a classic rugby player I won't say a classic scrum off you know <laughs> um, the, 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 the the best scrum off ever 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 in South Africa were Dr. Julian Smith, who played for Tigerberg. 
he was he was the best that I ever saw. Um, nobody nobody in the world came close to that man. He, he was a great creator. Um, phew, I'm telling you now, he was actually very classic as a scrummer. So yeah, we played against a few people, great great names in in South African rugby, but. Um, but that's what made the sport so so excited. You 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 wanted to be better than those guys, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, um, even even Ellis days a bit behind the time of the crowd. <laughs> it's a shame, and then they were they were very close to regenerating the the uh, the crowd uh, a few years ago. Um, they even did a sod turning. Sort turning ceremony with with uh, Randy and Pompey. So I think we're both there, and um, unfortunately the developer disappeared into the night, which is a shame. So uh, hopefully one day, maybe uh, maybe it's something that can be resurrected and give give somebody a f give a community a, a focal point for their sport rather than having to uh, travel here, there, and everywhere. But to make the crowd uh, a rugby stadium, or I don't think it will it will have the same impact. But to use it as a the uh, youth maybe like no, a, like development sports, yeah but sports development I don't know but yeah it, that, that might work you know um, but what I foresee that will be more significant for 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 Paul is you if you erect the uh, a rugby museum for for Paul oh, amazing do you understand what we're getting it and everybody yeah. bring this stuff there. From Paul, West Paul, East Paul, wherever, Wellington, um, Bukwini. And they were great, they were great in, 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 in this, in this Paul uh, Valley. So I think that will be much better because then, 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 then it's, it's open for anybody who had any connection with it. Sadly, most people to who the crowd is dear to their heart, they've passed on. So the new generation don't know anything about it, and they won't they won't appreciate it as much mm. as what those guys would have done. So the people who are talking about the crowd, um, they're on their last legs at the moment. So you just need to erect something there if you want to to make them understand they were great too in power and. Like you say, maybe uh, 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 not a rugby complex, but a sport complex, mm. where where every kind of sport can be developed there, like like we do have in Wales and in England, um, we have those little sport uh, uh, complexes where you see the cyclists and you see the soccer players and you see the, the gymnasts and everybody's around there and the. The, the, the cream of the crop mm. comes there for camps during holidays and those kind of things. So, yeah, maybe I think that would yeah. to me. But to make it a rugby, they, the, Paul doesn't have the capacity at this moment even to look after the existing fields already. For them to build another one just to go down the drain again is going to be a waste of money. Yeah, that's what I suppose continuing on from that, like, We'll, we'll talk about your school school career and, and, and a certain moment in 1974, but your school now... Can I interrupt you there quickly? The crowd were not only used during a weekend, but mm. all schools used the crowd during the week too. 
So there were school games going on uh, from from uh, Monday till Thursday. There will be school games on that on that kraal. So 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 you grew up there. You played barefoot there, and then you start playing with boots when you get older. And so that's actually what the kraal meant to to everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What well, focal point for a community as well. It must have been an amazing place to to be. But so you 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 were schooled in Paul, obviously at Nordepal School. Um, how was school life for you? I can't, I can't imagine that you were the picture perfect pupil. I can imagine you getting up to a lot of no good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine you being a, uh, uh, a classical straight A student and probably weren't very good at sitting down in classes. Am I right? Am I going to write? <laughs> Let me tell you, I went first to Niederberg Primary School. Um, that's in Paul East up there. And um, Niederberg Primary School, believe it if you want to, um, I was there, I became the Springbok coach, Chester was there, he became a Springbok rugby player, Tinas were there, he just, and Chester's brother, Everell, was also a Springbok rugby. So we delivered four Springboks as a school, and nobody ever says anything about it, you know. And that school is so far and deep into, into mischief. But all that says to me is that there's a huge talent drain in communities like Par East that are not they're not being tapped into yeah. because of because of the the big name schools are obviously producing fantastic rugby players. I'm not taking anything away from that, but we're still getting players now that are representing the box are saying, if I hadn't got the bursary to go to wherever to Gray, I wouldn't have made it. As simple as that. I'd still be in my community, still playing club rugby. We know the sort of names we're talk I'm talking about here. So. But what it tells me is that there is a huge amount of talent in these communities that has just been untapped. If a school of Niederberg size can produce four Springboks either coaching or playing, what, you know, why are we not tapping into these If you're talking about if I, if I didn't get a bursary, it's testimony of, of how we neglect the, the natural development. Mm. The natural development of only, of only giving the facilities to the to the players, the people. They will they will develop themselves like we did. They will develop themselves if there's only facilities. You know, I can remember how we at Niederberg School built a rugby field, built a cricket pitch for ourselves. Um, I can remember when I was a teacher how I built a rugby fields and athletic tracks. All those kinds of things with the players. I, I, I can remember those things. And, and if you look at how far those players got in their sport, you will never believe it. If, if, and you did nothing for them. You just only gave them the opportunity to get to some place where they can, where they can enjoy themselves. Because they do have the natural talent, you know. Um, coming back to, 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 to high school, um, you know, yeah, I think... I'm still like that. I was very hyperactive. <laughs> and while I was hyperactive, my teachers were tired, you know, and um, sit still and keep quiet and those kind of things were actually great in my life because I loved it. I love when a teacher tell me to sit, to sit still because I wanted to find out how many times in a period can he say that. Keep quiet. I wanted to find how many times can he say that to me, you know? And then after the after the, the period, then then 
what happened? We would say, you know what? I beat you with seven. He said, 12 times to me sit down. And he only said five times to you. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And, 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 and because they couldn't stimulate me, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, give me in the class what I, what I needed to progress because I explored everything in life. The rugby was the only thing that, that I knew could push me. I mean, I did athletics, we did cricket at school, we did all those kind of things, but we only do those things to get fit for rugby. Because rugby was the one thing that everybody supported, you know. And, um, yeah, um, schooling itself became a burden, but to go to school to go play rugby was the one thing that actually actually helped me to, to make my trick. Just. <laughs> I can't say just, uh, just, but, but rugby was number one in my father um, prohibited me to play the game. He stopped me totally from going to a rugby field. I packed my clothes in my brother's bag and then went to play until I got injured. And he saw, he didn't know for six months, for two years that I was still playing and then he saw me injured and then yeah, he stopped it completely. Um, that was the hardest part of time of my life, you know. And after matric, I went to Kimberley to go study uh, teaching there. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to Kimberley is to get away from that, keep holding me back from not playing rugby where I could be on my own. So I could go play there. And yeah, I made it and played provincial rugby as a student. Um, played... SA, SA colleges. Um, that was that was a great highlight in my life, and um, and played Saru trials, rugby trials. So got very very close to to being on the, on the, at the top of the of the of the. But yeah, we didn't make it. But what was top of the tree for you? Because it's well, I mean, still to this day, especially in the Western Cape, there's a lot of people who don't support the Springboks for varying reasons, but for you growing up, what was top of the train? And did you support the Springboks? No, I didn't support them. I, I did support the Springboks when I was at primary school. Um, I knew every Springbok. If I saw a photo in a, in, a, in a paper, the way the guy was running, I could say who it is. I could say was it the background. Or I, I, had, I had almost 200... Um, um, books, uh, what do you call it? Where you had all those photographs, yeah, like sticker books, all those photographs of those guys in there. I cut out everything out of every of the every paper. I added books. It was stacked. And my room was full with it. Um, I came back home when I was thirteen. One day, played a good game at school, and the teachers told me you're gonna become a springbok one day. Um, and I went home and I said to my mother, "Mommy, you know what? I'm gonna become a springbok." And she said, no, you will never become a springboard because it's only for the whites. So the two people you believed in your life, it was a teacher and your mother. The one that gave me contradictory uh, uh, versions of, of what I can become, you know. So I was very confused as a 13-year-old. But on my way to my room, I turned back and said to my mom, listen, if I can't play for them, I will coach them one day. And 37 years after that, I did coach them. So, so... What happened in between from becoming a springbok and, and, and the day, that day where I burned all those books, I saw my mother cried 
because I bought branded books, she, she, because she knew that there was no more nothing that I live for. You know, she knew Rabbi was my the only thing. So I burned all those books because I couldn't become a springbok. And um, you know, I'm telling you now, Keith Oxley, all those, it was years, years, from 1937, I had photographs of them. Because the high school was then, the middle page, every week, there was a photograph of the rugby spring boxing for years and years and years, and I could collect them all, you know. But anyhow, um, and I burned those books, and, um, and then they did throw us out of town, go stay on one heap, where it wasn't great for any human being to, to actually build yourself a great future. But anyhow, we were there, and we'd made it. And, um, and, then I decided to play for Saru. Um, I had the opportunities to play on the other side because there were some of my rugby uh, uh, mentors then. When I went to Kimberley, came back, stopped me and said, listen here, please come and play on the side because we need you here. But I just decided my, I'm not a politician. Um, my contribution that I could make that I'm not uh, agreeing with what the government are doing is to just go play rugby with my people, you know, and put my talent into my own uh, area and own people. So, so by 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 doing that, by doing that, um, you you supported every team and any team who played against the Springboks. Um, we weren't allowed actually on the prime areas at Newlands. You could have sit anywhere because you're gonna actually poison the seats or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And um, so yeah, any any team, any team who played against South Africa, I supported them. Um, there was no specific team that we supported, but anything but not the Springboks. That's interesting because it's one of the things you just said there is that you turned turned around to your mother and said, I will coach them at the age of 13, which which, which is quite quite a, a profound statement, not just because, from a prediction um, point of view that then came well, but the fact that you knew you wanted to coach is probably more, more sort of surprising to me because a lot of people just get, they just want to play. So at what point did you think, actually... I want to play, and when I finish playing, I want to coach. Because that's a very young age to make that decision. So what was the switch in your head that, that, that brought that on? Let me tell you something. If, 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 if you lie on your bed at night and you dream something, it doesn't make sense. And this doesn't make sense either. Do you understand? We're getting it. Our coaches at school were the ones who played on a Saturday that we went to go watch and... And they were brilliant. They were they were actually great cricketers. They were they were brilliant, you know. But they were our coaches. So coaching is just a thing. It's not. <laughs> that is not getting it. So now it's a profession. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. understand where you're getting. getting it. For me to then say coaching, it it was actually part of 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 a dream that I never knew that came out verbal. Then started getting it, and when it came through, through, and we can look back at it. Me and my mom and look, look back at it. We said to ourselves, "Wow, 
Wow, 37 years. And and we never knew that that apartheid will, will, will not be there one day. We never knew those kind of things. So, so what I learned from it, are dreams real? Or is the reality a dream? <laughs> Sometimes people have to make those up for themselves and work it out for themselves and, and find where they want to live in. They can live in that bubble or they can live in that bubble. And in the midst of all of this, you became a teacher, 20 years a teacher. So it's a two-part question, I suppose. Um, I'm assuming that you coached while you were teaching. Um, and then also, how much of you being a teacher for 20 years do you believe influenced your coaching style and made you the coach that you are today? Everything. There's nothing about teaching... I'm still a teacher. I'm still teaching, but, but on a different on a different level. But you weren't you weren't teaching Bucky's butter, <laughs> like you weren't teaching Victor Matfield. You were teaching children. I did teach them. I did teach. I teach. I taught the children, and and being a religious person, I, I look back on my on my on my career and look at the schools that that I went to. It wasn't the best schools in in Paul. It was challenging. Um, I took my, my children on field trips, on bicycle trips, on all those kind of things, but I had to go borrow, by, borrow bicycles for them. I had, you know, I have to put them on a train and take them to places. I was, I was there with them. All the other teachers went on parties. I was busy coaching them from the morning till the night. We did all kinds of sports with them. Um, we had to do 12 different kinds of sports at college when you were a PE teacher, you know. So, so I could do all those kind of things, and 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 I loved it, and I loved to work with them. But the needs, the needs of 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 those of those children matured me, mm. you know, to a certain extent, where 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 I became psychological, stronger than anybody else. I knew that that if we're gonna play tomorrow, I knew that I can only select the team the day of of the game because you don't know what guys will get get injured in in, in gangster fighting and all those kind of things. One thing that uh, comes to mind now, I had a a great five boy standard three in my my physical education class. And I said to him, listen here, now, now Magnolia was in the flats, and I had asked them, if I walk through this flats and the gangsters are stopping me and they want to rob me, what will you do? He said, I will tell them, guys, look what you can get, eh? because I need to survive, uh, sir, he said to me. I love you, but I can't help you. You understand what I'm getting? I love you, but I can't help you. Yes, that was that was significant for me. That was profound. When somebody else, who who who, who I gave food at school, where I taught them how to do athletics and all those kind of things, and he knew I'm saving his life, said that to me. Mm. You know, so I knew at the end everybody's there for themselves, but I can't. I'm here for all of us. So. I, I learned that 
a, a, a boy will tell me, it's fine, you can stop here, I'll get off here, I'm just living there. And one day I followed the guy, and almost for two kilometers he walked on further to his house. And then one day I, I went to his house, and the reason why he didn't want me to get close to his house is not about the circumstances there only, it's about the circumstances of his parents. You know, how they were been paid um, with wine and every second day, we don't know what kind of state you'll find them in when you get there. So he kept them away and then I realized, wow, everybody protects something or someone. And those are the things that I could bring into coaching, you know. And, and when somebody says something to you, isn't what he mean. And when players spoke to me, I know it's not what they mean, you know. So that helped me so much in coaching. I think it made me, it made me, it matured me in understanding people. So do you actually believe you would have been an elite coach if you hadn't, if you hadn't have taught? Definitely. Those two schools has, has, has made me, has made me what other people has to go to university for. Those people taught me that. Amazing. So coaching, you, what was your first coaching? It was a professional at the time, but your first head coach role was at a club, was a, outside of the school, obviously. Yeah, I, uh, while I was playing for Young Gardens, I was a coach, you know. Mm. Um, one of the few could play and coach, and, 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 and because I understood it so easily, and I knew what to do next, and could see four or five moves ahead, you know. And then from there, when I stopped um, uh, there, I went to, I did uh, the teacher's training college in Paul then, uh, Ethlon Training College, I, I coached them. I went to coach the, the correctional services in Cape Town. Um, that was it, interesting. It was tough, it was tough. That, that guy's, that guy's, that guy's had so many talented rugby players. Um, because people offered them, because they saw how good they were at school and then they offered them to come there so they have a good a team. But they couldn't fight, they couldn't stand up for themselves, they didn't understand it. So I had to coach them different to what I was used to coaching. I had to, I, uh, giving the opponents we're going to play against, I had to coach outside my own religion. <laughs> and, 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 and if, if, if I look at what I did then, I'm ashamed of, of how I did it. But it was the only way to get them to become as good as, they, as, they, as what they were. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Tigerberg, and from Tigerberg it was Western Province. Um, Western Province, it was up to the Falker, uh, Blue Bulls. Yeah. And then under 19, and, and then under 21, and then that's how it, and then, ugh, I don't know. <laughs> it just went on and on and on and on. And you know what the one thing about all of those years? If I if I if I if I if I meet some of the players today, they will still come to me and say, if I only understood what you did for me then, mm. yeah, I would have been a great rugby player. Eh? And um and I think I was a bit of ahead of my time. Um, professional coaching is not putting structures in place. I mean, that's only part of professional coaching. If things don't work, you can fall back on your structure. It, it shouldn't be from the... 
from the start it should be taking what you have uh, identified as, as 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 potential and talent take that and make it a unit and put them onto the field and go live your rugby and if it doesn't work you fall back into the structure because that doesn't work today you know and that's how, how i did it you know while other coaches will put the structure first and everybody has to fit into the structure and by that you're actually killing the natural ability of, 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 of most players. So I think I was a bit ahead of my time. Um, but, but then again, um, that's not the one thing that, that actually were my biggest uh, obstacle. My biggest obstacle was the fact that I didn't take any nonsense from anybody, you know. To me, the player was number one, number two, number three, while everybody else around us, the officials were number one, number two, number three. Mm -hmm. And um, I lock heads with, with a lot of people because of that. Um, but to me, if I have to do anything over in my life, the players or the people, I always said to, to, to my staff, I said to them, the only reason why you here is because of the child. And at parents' meetings, I say, the only reason why we met each other is because of the child. So if you can't fight for your child, don't come and fight here. Mm. You understand? We're getting it. The, 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 the only reason why we met each other, why we here is, is... Now, the only reason why we're in rugby is because of the players. And so they are assets. But they're not number one. In, uh, they should be number one, you know. And, and, I, and that is where my fights are. Because a player will never get what he wants. Mm. He will get what he needs. And I will fight if it's a need for him. You understand? But some of our officials, they want to take the opportunities of the players to make them feel good about the position they are in. Yeah, so in hindsight then, and now after what you just said, actually your next moves into the world of Springbok coaching was probably perfect in taking the age group levels, Springboks, um, to under, it was under 21 World Cups at the time. Under 19 um, first. It was under 19 first, okay. So then you went, so firstly, how did that that job come about? Was that on reputation? Um you know how, how do you how do you how do you get a job like that from coaching? Well, obviously you're already in the provincial system, so everyone's obviously going to know know the name, so to speak. Um, but but yeah, how did how did you end up in those roles? Saru wanted to. Then it was Sarfu. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to to fast track some coaches, so I was one of those coaches. And I was nominated the first one to be with the Springboks. So when the British Lions came here and Carl de Plessis was the, the coach. 97. I was with Carl de Plessis there. Okay. So at the end of that year, I was the assistant coach with Nick Mallet to the UK. I had some fights with him because because um, um, he couldn't answer me properly on what is the reason why I'm there, you know? I don't think you can go learn the game in coaching. You coach because you know the game. 
and I believed I was there for that reason. So, so when we came back, um, the CEO of Saru, and then there were five guys, called me into a meeting, and they asked me um, what went wrong on the tea on the tour, and what wasn't good on the tour. I said to them, "But, but you didn't send me as a spy on the." on that tour. So wasn't what wasn't good on the tour will be in the report of the manager. Um, I was there to go up coach the as an assistant coach and that's what I did. Yeah but didn't said there was nothing wrong. And there was a hell of a lot wrong but I but I wasn't there to come and bad mouth anybody. Um, and then from there I became they just because I didn't play the game the way they wanted me to play the game. And they couldn't then now just get rid of me. They made me the under-19 coach. They gave me that job. And for the three years that I was the under-19 coach, we never won that tournament, but we never lost a game. Because there was technicalities in those tournaments. When there's two sides, you're gonna to go to the semi-final. You have to kick for goal, or you have to do this, and you go for points. <laughs> so we f fell out of those kind of stuff on the, on those technicalities, you know. And um, and and after those three years, um, <laughs> again, uh, on a sinister way, in 2001. Uh, Swiss Joubert became the, the under-21 coach and they told me I had to move on now so I became the assistant coach for Swiss and there we had a hell of a lot of fights I told him listen you tell me where you want me to coach if I coach the backs if you coach the backs I will take the forwards if you coach the forwards I will take the backs you decide and he didn't trust me with 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 the backs, you know. So one before we went on the tournament, I said to him, "I'm not going. You cannot go alone because this is not what I want. If I want responsibility." And then Saru actually gave him a directive to to give me the backs, and okay, I took responsibility for it. We didn't do too well on that tournament because he was never his own man, you know. He um, always consulted with some people which I don't want to mention now, called every night to South Africa, what should I do now, what can I do here, and yeah. Don't practice with caps on and pick, pull up your socks and say, hey, we're not a Sunday school excursion, this is a rugby team, you know. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> so when we came back, we all, we didn't, we weren't successful in, in Australia. So we came back and we all were fired. And then in 2000, there was one, so 2002 and 3, um, I wasn't part of SA Rugby, and 4, um, and Brian van Royen became the, 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 the president, he said, where is that man that was so successful? Go, go look for him, why did we throw him away? And he brought me back. And for those three years with under 21, it was actually the years that, um, that made me, because none of those games under 19 were played in South Africa, were televised in South Africa, so nobody knew about you. You know, and um, but under twenty one, the, the games were televised here and all those kind of things. So, so yeah. Um, but because of my coaching style, players enjoyed it with me, and they felt free to do things. You know, and then guys like Nas Buta then and those guys took me uh, from uh, they were then what was it 
it was a program on Supersport that they ran every week night or Thursday night. And they took me out because things happened on the tour. The ladies were, the boys were um, just boys, you know. And I loved it. I loved it because I know if somebody can do those kind of things, I took it from my experience. <laughs> if they can do... It's all about your school days. If they can yeah. do those kind of things, they can take responsibility for their space on the rugby field, you know. And we were brilliant. I mean, we beat teams in the 70s and 60s. and, and uh, But they never appreciated those kind of things. So we came back and became the under-20 coach, 21 coach, and we were very successful on that. And, um, and still... Still, they didn't wanted me because of the fact that I didn't see color. You know, I gave I gave equal opportunities to those who deserve it. Um, um, I think I'm blessed with 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 the man management and and, and knowledge of uh, human knowledge. If I'm with a guy a week or two days, I exactly know what he loves and what he does. Um, I will forget his name, but I will never forget how to handle him. You understand me getting it? And that made them made, made, made the players feel comfortable. I can remember still some of the players come from these big schools and the first thing they will ask you when they when they play under 19, under 21, coach, what do you want of me? Hey, how can you ask me? You can you must come tell me what can you bring to the You've been selected for a reason, yeah, yeah. Come tell yeah. me what can you bring to the party, you know? That is how I coach my players, so that they can take responsibility for their for their for their spaces, and um, and yes, that was the part of my life that that I invested a hell of a lot in in a hell of a lot of players. Uh, yeah, some amazing players came out of that as well, but um, and then. 2007 take charge of the emerging box which <laughs> the names keep changing all the time and yeah. people keep moving keep moving stuff around um and you go to book arrest of all places for, let's just take that for an example like for a group of south africans to go to Bucharest must have been scary but a brilliant like, surely an amazing experience to go to a non-rugby i mean their football would be first choice in Romania I suppose but to play a, a tournament there and be involved must have been must have been quite surreal but really grounding for the players yeah you know um, I had a very good team I had a very very good team then um, they asked a coach in South Africa to take that team and he said with, with, with six weeks to go he said no there's not enough time to prepare a team and then they asked another guy, and both of them were provincial super rugby coaches then. And they asked another one, he said, no, with three weeks ago, there's not, he can't. And then they asked me a week before he went, if I want to coach a team. And and then um, Jonathan, what was his name, the CEO then said to me, there's only one condition, you must be successful. I said, don't give me, give me a challenge, please. You know, and he thought I was boasting because it's so easy. It's so, it's so easy to make a team out of a bunch of great, rugby young players, you just has to put something there that's common to all of them, you know, and then they all work towards the same goal. Um, I had one guy who, who he, he was a lock then, he cut his hair, yell, I'm telling you now, you, you, nobody will cut his hair like that day. <laughs> so, 
Him and Skalk Bridge were in the in the in the Skalk Bridge were the captain of that team. He were in the, when the lift and Skalk said to him as a as a lift stop. Skalk said, if the coach see you now with this hairstyle, he's gonna chase you away. This is how they've been brought up, you know. So as they stop, I saw this guy. I said, wow. If you have the guts to mismake you like this, <laughs> you have to play on Saturday. Because if you can do this to yourself, what will you do to other people? <laughs> you know? So, so now, now you, you, you're bringing something different out of the people. And, and I'm telling you, he played the game of his life, you know. Um, yeah, there was great sorry to Belika. Um, yeah, there were great players. <laughs> Chili Boy Ralapella. Um, Ashley Johnson. We had we had really scout birds. We had brilliant players in that in that side. Eh? Guys who, who who actually went on to be to, to become Springboks. Um, the only thing is, with what I knew when I got them, I knew I've got a disappointed bunch of guys because um, don't want to exaggerate, but almost sixteen of that team. Were promised Springbok colors, so they were fly when when there was a Springbok camp in South Africa. They were part in Cape Town. They were part of it. Those in Joburg, they were part of it. So they all lived in that they're going to become Springboks. So that Saturday when they announced the Springbok side, we got together the the the, 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 the Monday after that when they announced the Springbok side, I knew and when, when I glad guys will come on Monday. They're gonna really be very disappointed that they didn't make it, you know. So you will take a disjointed side over there. And what I forgot, I I, I forgot all about rugby principles and how you scrum. And I didn't even take that into cognizance in my first two days and at the practice. We only started rugby stuff on a, on a, on, a, on a Wednesday Thursday before we left. Two days. And um, I did things with them that 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 they realized, whoa, yeah, we are in for a thing, yeah. And suddenly they forgot all about their disappointments, and we made them a team in two days, and we went over there. And because I knew that there was such great rugby talent among them, I knew if they're gonna gel, they're gonna be brilliantly, you know. So, so now I have to play games with their minds. Um, play the best guys. And then get them off the field very, very quick so that they can wonder why did he take me off. So when I get him back onto the field the next game again, he'll step higher. So we had to play games with them, with their minds, so that to get the best out of them. And and get them just get them freedom. You know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had super rugby players, we had, yeah, we had such a lot of players in there that, that actually were brilliant, so so I knew that we were going to win. That's why I could say, oh, it's easy to go win this thing, mm -hmm. you know, because they were actually great rugby players. And um, I think that is that is that's where my, that's where my problem started. Firstly, in 2009 and 2005, when we won the World Cup with that nine black players, starting, and then and then 2007. Um, that was the year when, when, when Jake White were under fire and, and, and they actually used 
the media to disqualify me. Mm. You know? So the media would ask me a question like, um, do you think there's enough black players in South Africa to play for South Africa? So yeah, I can mention 70 players that can play for South Africa. But he never mentioned, never asked me, is there enough white players? Mm. You understand? Mm. So then I would say, yeah, there's enough. But there were 70 that can play for South Africa. I didn't say 70 will play for South Africa. But they can play for South Africa if, if, you, if you want them to play. Because I worked with the best. Under 19, under 21, I worked with everybody who was in the Springbok side then. I worked with all of them, you know. Um, and uh, I knew what was going on in, in the country rugby-wise. And then they were writing a story, and I wasn't here, I was over there, so they write a story here. Peter de Villiers says when he takes over the Springboks, he will use that say yes, 70 players who can, black players who can play for the Springboks, and that's what he will use. So now I become enemy number one for all the people in South Africa who thought I'm going to make everything black, you know, with a new black government in place and all those kind of things, and that is the kind of tactics that they used. Um, to discredit me. So, I didn't know about it. I didn't know about it, but afterwards I, oh, I realized when, 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 when some people uh, um, uh, went to Chester Williams when we were there for that Springbok job, went to him and said, listen, you're going to be the next Springbok, just stand against Peter de Valle. So now they want to divide and rule again and <laughs> all those kind of things, you know. But, but I realized that afterwards, oh, that is the thing that, made, that disqualified me. But the one thing that's more, if you go look back at the crowd, look back at what happened with Saru and Federation and all those kind of things, the one thing that's most disturbing is the fact that the people who were fighting side by side for, for justice, for being acknowledged as a, as, a, as a human being and those things, those are the people who forgot all those principles that you were fighting for, you know? <clears throat> now, now, I'm the first to tell you, as soon as a principle comes in the way of progress, it becomes an obstacle. But you can work around obstacles if you have principles. <laughs> but if you don't have principles, the obstacle becomes everything for you, you know? So, so those are the things at this stage that where we are now, that that we have lost, we have lost everything that we fought for, everything that we had to, to change minds, everything that we lost it because of our own self-centered greed, if I can call it this way. Um, um, people are not there for the reason why they're there. They're there to look after their own future. They're there to look at the, the retirement packages. They look at those kind of things, mm. except of being there for them for the reason why they're there. And that's, I mean, that's disturbing at this moment uh, in time for us all, uh, for me, very uh, more so because um, I pretend to be an honest guy. Um, so what I'm fighting for, and I, I think my integrity speaks for itself, what I fight for, and this is my, my downfall, what I fight for is more for other people than, than for myself, you know. My final question for you on there is, we, we all know about your Springbok career. We all know how you got in us. It's been 
documented over and over and over again and over again. But the one question I haven't seen and the one question I really, really want to ask you now. Do you look back on your Springbok time fondly? Did you enjoy it? Or do you actually look back at it and go, do you know what, that was exhausting. It was an absolute battle every day. And all I wanted to do was coach rugby players. A lot of people do thrive on different... Um, um, not opportunity, opportunities maybe is the word. Um, some a coach taught me how not to coach. And the principal taught me how not to teach. But those were so valuable lessons that they taught me. You know? And I thrive on negativity. I thrive when people are negative around me. I thrive when people don't believe in me. I thrive in it. Because where other people try to show them that they were wrong, I don't care if they are wrong. And I don't care if they are right. I don't want to show them. But 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 one thing that I that 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 I had from a very young age in myself is I'm very competitive. And I compete with myself. You know, so when I look at outcomes, and it's not, even if it's a win, and it's not at the standard where I want it to be, I put a hell of a lot of uh, big premium on myself to make it better, you know. So when people tell me, you're not good enough, it's fine. I don't have a problem with it, because I'm not yet to be good enough. I'm yet to be the best. <laughs> do, you, do you understand what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at? So yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed it for the one reason and the only reason not everybody get the opportunity to serve his country. And I had. I had an opportunity to serve my country at the highest, highest, highest level. That a cup is half full and half empty at times. It all depends on how you look at it. You know, so when people criticize me and, and, and don't don't talk to me about positive criticism, there's nothing, there's no positive criticism in life. Criticism is criticism at the end of the story. When people were, um, when I had the critics around me, I would look at them and try to find out where does it really come from, you know. And then you'll find that most of the guys are negative because they will never have that opportunity. You know? So, 99.9% .9 of people didn't criticize me. They criticized the job. If I went the coach there, somebody else would have got the critics. You understand beginning? So I never made it personal. I enjoyed it so, so much. Especially now when I look back and see how many lives I have changed outside the 22 that went onto the field. Yeah. How many lives I've changed there. I'm telling you now, I couldn't have been in a better spot. So, so nothing bothers me really. And I am, I am, I am grateful um, for the privilege just to be part of something that, that great. I always knew I would be a caretaker for that four years. And I sit down today and I look back and I say, wow, I really took great care of something that's not mine. <laughs>
And uh, I think I think to be honest, there was a lot of players there that left the shirt in a better place than when they picked it up. Um, and very very last question now: if the 2011 quarterfinal wasn't refereed the way it was, we don't need to mention the name. We know it was. You do you think you'd have won that? Definitely, definitely. We were we were so well prepared. We were so well prepared. Um, a, lot of, a lot of your players have said the same. The, the, the preparation was... We were so, you were ready to win that World We Cup. were so well prepared. But the, but the reason why I say is, from the Australian-New Zealand game in 2011, that we played in South Africa, to the World Cup, Wales, you could see that the curve were, were going up. Um, in our analysis after that, you could see the involvement in the game, how we we controlled every specific second, and, and the time that we weren't in control, we were so good in controlling the, the, the game that we couldn't control at that stage, that people um, never had a chance against us, you know. So, so yeah, I think we, we would have done very, very well. I, 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 I can't say yes, but I will say 75%. I'm positive that we would have... Taking the title, who are taking the World Cup down in New Zealand would have uh, meant, A, you'd never be able to go to New Zealand ever again, because um, <laughs> you'd get lynched off the plane, but I think we'd have um, cemented... Can I, can I tell you something that happened in New Zealand? Can I tell you something Go in New Zealand? Go for in, it. in Hamilton. In Hamilton. And this is what I overheard. So we beat the All Blacks in Hamilton. And some of the officials of World Rugby who had that game, this is what they said. Such a pity that they've won the All Blacks here now. Now we have to make the Springboks, the team of the year, but we can't make that coach the team of the year. That, that's what I overheard. That's what I overheard, I'm telling you now. And when they announced, I think the Irish coach then as the coach of the year, I, um, I knew it long before because, because there was a lot of animosity around the way we did things, you know, people didn't like it, people, 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 people like the conventional guys who say yes and no, if I didn't like a thing, I just said, no, that's not what I like and even my own players didn't, didn't know what my plan was by doing it that way, I never told them, but I drew such a lot of attention on me that they Never were bothered as a as as, as a team, you know. Well, this is it, and I suppose one of my overarching um, observations now is <clears throat> Eddie Jones is lauded for being the way he is. Yeah, he annoys the he annoys the press. You annoyed the press, <laughs> and but it's it's a clever way of annoying the press. Yeah. <laughs> but just like you know, it's like casting a line and seeing who's going to bite first. And Eddie Jones is lauded for it now, and all of a sudden he's a genius. And then I, I, I heard an interview the other day with Dylan Hartley, and he, he to a degree, as he's just really spoken, put his fingers up to the establishment by when he 
when he gave after dinner speeches after England games, he was told to thank the committee members that had flown over to Italy, like it was an absolute yeah. chore for them. And he said, I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't bow down to the old regime style of um, sporting politics mm. that a guy who's in a privileged position and getting a free flight to Italy, watching the game from a box, having a lovely dinner after it, lovely <laughs> hotel, and then gets flown flow back. Why should I be thanking him for coming? You know, it's part of the job. And uh, yeah, I think um, I think a lot of your press conferences will go down in history, but they were great entertainment from where I was watching. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> right, the second part of our pod, not forgetting this, which is um, that hour is going to be very difficult to follow. We did start the PDV Dream Team. Tony Woodcock went in at loose head. Um, and we are on to hook it now. So, please, take it away. Uh, and you know, I'm, I, I, I'm bad at names, hey? You must help me. Is it Keith Wood? Correct. I never saw a more competitive rugby player in my coaching tenure than that man and focused hard nut um, leave everything on the field um, couldn't be bothered by anything you know and a bloody good leader so he will be the the first nominee to me and then if I if, if, if the circumstances must be right then I will go for a guy like Bismarck because I had brilliant hookers in South Africa. Um, Chili Boy, those guys, oh, they were outstanding. But the one that will always be outstanding for me, um, Ali was, he was tough, he was tough. He was tough because he understood the game. He was tough because he had the, 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 the presence of mind to understand who he's working with and how to get the best out of them and how to take himself at times, put him at the back so that somebody else can be in the spotlight. Uh, that will be John Smith. I assumed it was going to be John Smith. <laughs> um, and then obviously you, you, you used him not just a, a hooker, obviously. And to take away the technical aspects of that, I, I, we've spoken briefly about it before. Was it purely that he was that good a leader that he just had to be in that team, or what was the reason? The Lions team now. Yeah. No, he would. He would be John Smith. I went to recruit him after he um, left South Africa. I went to recruit him again and said, "We need you as a country." Um, not for his leadership skills only, but because of he has the ability and an aura around him that, that most of the players, not, not everybody, but most of the players to a certain extent did respect him. And we needed that. The team needed that. To move forward from 2007 to we needed that. We can't go backwards and start. We just had to, to, to move on with that momentum. That's number one. So he was always number one hooker for me until the Lions. And after that, if he wasn't good enough, in my assessment, that's the end of his career. But he showed me that he still wanted to and that's why he stayed on until the end. When Brian Mujati left the scene, I approached him and I said to him, now I have to convert you because there's nobody in the country who will take that pressure and still be have the presence of mind and to go on. But you know, I did the man such a big disfavor. 
Although I said to him, if he doesn't make it there, I will not judge you. I will, because you're number one hooker for me. I will bring you back to hooker. And then he, he had to pick up weight to play prop. He probably enjoyed the eating, let's be honest. Yeah, but he had, we to all, pick, we <laughs> but he had to pick up weight so quickly to go play prop. And then, and then when our preparation games in, in, in Namibia, um, his boy got ill. So, I didn't take the, the best team to Namibia, but I wanted him to get the preparation at, at tight end, you know. And then he flew the Friday in, played the Saturday and just went back again. And, and he did very, very well then. So, I, was set, I set my mind on him and said to him, now I'm supporting you. Now it's all about you because I'm not watching the game. The people are watching the game. So now you can go break down 10 years of good rugby in one game. But he just showed that he, that he with, with the team who was supporting him, Bucky's behind him. And, you know, I, I made sure that I put Bucky's behind him and all those kind of <laughs> So we, we gave him enough support because he had the, the, the presence of, of, of mind and he was, he was really good. Way, way, and, and you could see in that scrums how good he really were. You know, and um, they were they were fired up as a, as a, as a pack. So so it's not because I I went to ask him because there was nobody else in this country who were, who would have made it in that in that position. So yeah, I um, asked him and he said yes, and and, and that was a, a great step for a guy who, who who wanted just to play against the Lions to say yes for that. I mean, it was unselfishly. That he did that. He did that. For, he did that for his country. Really. That's a real testament to someone's character, yeah, isn't it? That yeah, really definitely. Is. Really is. Definitely. Right. So joining Tony Woodcock in the front row, Mr. John Smith at, at Hooker. Uh, obviously, your captain as well. Um, and we will see who the rest of the team is before we get to the captain. No, no, he was your captain. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but he was my captain. But being he was your captain. for that, at for the that time, team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. While he was I playing. don't think the team needs a captain because he won't play. Oh no, he's going to be a captain. <laughs> Somebody's got to control those egos. Someone needs, someone needs to manage upwards to you as no. well to keep you calm and uh, not going back to your school days. Peter, thank you so much for today. An amazing podcast, being such a great uh, opportunity to look into your past and your character and some of the things that have happened, which is just tremendous um, and also to learn more from where you've come from which is a real privilege to be able to do and uh, thank you guys for listening thank you so much thank you to workshop 17 for uh, supporting us through this project of ours and until next time we shall see you very very soon there we go. well done you've been listening to the pdv pod in partnership with scrum 5 and workshop 17